Good morning. Welcome back, BPAC. This is your girl, Dr. Ebony Jade Hilton. Now, as you all know, I'm a double board certified anesthesiologist with a specialty in critical care medicine. And what that means is I spend about 70% of my time in the operating room, and the remainder is spent covering the ICU. My ICU in particular is the cardiothoracic ICU. And what that is, is that it's the final stop in the hospital if your heart or your lungs start to fail you. And that's why I'm coming to you today. You see, this episode will be slightly different than what you're used to. Kim, Kelly, and I thought it was important to host a special episode about this ever-evolving virus, the coronavirus, or the COVID-19, as it's called. This pandemic is wreaking havoc on the globe, and I'll do my best to tell you what it is, what to expect, and how to keep you and your family safe. So what is coronavirus, right? Well, you may see it in the news. It's called COVID-19, covid Dash one nine for coronavirus 2009. Now you may have heard of coronavirus in the past. This is a family or, or a family of viruses that's collectively known under the umbrella of coronaviruses. And for comparison's sakes, think of it as a last name. Like you may have the last name Johnsons, for instance, right? And if your last name is Johnson, you have many cousins that share that same name, although you come from slightly different families. Well, that is what the coronavirus is. Coronavirus in totality is the Johnson's umbrella, but this Johnson's family, AKA coronavirus, causes a variety of diseases. These are the individual cousins of the family, right? And these individual diseases range from the common cold onward to the severe respiratory failure that you may remember caught China by storm in 2003. This one was called SARS for severe acute respiratory syndrome, and it ended up claiming the lives of 774 deaths in China. And it is again from China, particularly Wuhan, China, that it's thought that the COVID-19, this member of the coronavirus, originated on November 17, 2019. Now you may hear this virus compared to the flu, and how exactly does it compare to the flu? Well, as we know, the flu strikes every year, but it's slightly different each time it strikes. Now, luckily, our bodies have been exposed to the flu the previous years, and this allows people to have a, a residual immunity, if you will, meaning that your body recognizes the flu virus and it attempts to fight it off. Additionally, we have vaccines for the flu that helps to slow its spread from person to person. And if you unfortunately get the flu, we have medications that we can give to you to help to kind of mitigate the symptoms or reduce the symptoms, namely, namely like Tamiflu. We've all heard of it, right? But even despite this effort and all these safeguards, every year upwards of 646,000 people around the world die from the flu. And in particular in 2009, the H1N1 flu, aka the, sw the swine flu, claimed the lives of over 12,000 US Americans alone, with over 284,000 deaths worldwide. I'll say that again. In 2009, the H1N1 flu, the swine flu, claimed the lives of 12,000 U.S. Americans alone with over 284,000 deaths worldwide. And that's what makes this scary. You see, this virus, COVID-19, coronavirus, appears to be even more contagious and fatal than the flu, than that flu. The problem is our body has not seen this COVID-19 before. That's why they call it a novel virus. So our body doesn't have any immunity. And we don't have a vaccine either to help keep it under wraps. 
And with current trends, it's estimated that the COVID-19 will kill between 200,000 to 1.4 million Americans before it's totally kind of contained and, and or that we have a vaccine available. In fact, currently the caseload in the United States for people being infected is jumping in numbers over a few days. For instance, on March the 8th, we had 564 known cases in the United States. By March the 9th, that number climbed to 728 cases. March the 10th, 1,000 cases. March the 11th, we had 1,200 cases. March the 13th, we had 2,000 cases. And now on March the 15th, there are 3,533 known cases in the United States. But keep in mind, this number is grossly underestimated because we are not testing many people at all. We have only tested around 18,000 people in the United States. And why is that? You see, the World Health Organization, you may hear them called WHO, W-H-O, right? WHO did in fact release a test that could help detect infection based on the genome of the virus isolated in China. They took the virus in China, took someone's blood sample and said, this is what the virus is, this is how you can detect it. And many other countries like Italy and Korea, they've been using this and it's helped them greatly. For instance, in South Korea, they are testing upwards of 10,000 people a day. But America, AKA Mr. 45 himself, decided to not use the provided test, opting to make ours from scratch, right? Which d delayed us by a considerable amount of time of which we still are just getting off the ground with this testing. And wait for it, he did it because he wanted to use the private sector in order to make it. Follow the money, people. But I digress. Now, what does that mean for, for us? What's the impact? Well, what we know is in China, where the virus originated, um, that they were behind the eight ball because they didn't know. It just popped up on November 17th, right? And because of that, they have a fatality rate of about 4.5%. Now, in an ideal world, that means that this should be the highest hit area and that the highest fatality rate should be around 4.5%. And what we see is that if you do aggressive testing, we should hopefully be able to reduce those numbers, right? Thereby isolating the inf infected people to try to contain the disease. Um, and that there, if you have lower infection, then you should have hopefully be able to reduce the number of people that will die, right? So take South Korea, for instance. They have tested more than 248,000 people. And by doing so, they kept their, their deaths down to only 72 people. And I say only, but I want to make sure we know that one person is someone's husband, wife, you know, someone's, someone's son, daughter. They mean something to someone. So I don't mean only to belittle it. What I'm saying is that their number, the total number, is 72 people in South Korea that have passed away. And that means that about 0.9% of those who are infected die. That's less than 1% compared to the 4.5% of people dying of the infection in China. So it says that we're moving in the right direction, right? But in order to get to that number, they took immense actions in South Korea and they basically shut, shut the place down. Now, what happens when there is a delay of sort? Like what happens if you don't immediately shut down your country? Well, let's look at Italy. They're also using the WHO test, um, the, you know, the World Health Organization test, but they didn't have as aggressive a containment strategies. And what we have witnessed is that the overwhelming impact this virus has. Remember I said South Korea only had 72 deaths. 
Well, Italy had 386 deaths just in one day. Yeah, you heard me right. Whereas South Korea has had total of 72 deaths, Italy in one day had 386 people die. And it's raising its total to 1,809 people who have died from this disease. And its death rate is climbing by 25%. And it's projected to only get worse. You see, also in that one day where those 386 people die, over 2,500 new cases were diagnosed with coronavirus in Italy for a total of 24,700 people known to now be infected in that country alone. And the only thing scarier for an American here in that is knowing that we have taken even less precautions at Italy, that we've allowed for travel, and worse yet, that our trajectory of rate of rise in cases is delayed only by 10 days in comparison to Italy, and that our number of cases have just barely crossed over 3,000 in the United States, meaning that only 3,000 people are being confirmed with this, with this disease. And the only thing scarier than that is as a medical provider, knowing that the reason why our numbers are only at 3,000 is because we don't have the tests to actually diagnose the disease in the United States. By March the 12th, 2020, we have only tested 13,000 people in the United States. And that's 18 times less than, the than South Korea. To put it in perspective to population size, the United States um, has tested about 41 people per 1 million citizens. And South Korea has tested about 4,831 people per 1 million citizens. Italy, who is again having a higher death rate by far with 386 deaths in one, just one day, is testing about 1,420 citizens per 1 million people, right? So in other words, the more you test, the more you contain, the less lives lost. So again, let's recap these numbers one more time. South Korea testing 4,831 people per 1 million persons has 75 deaths. Italy testing 1,420 citizens per 1 million persons has 1,809 people dead. And the United States, here we are, testing only 41 persons per 1 million citizens. And we already have 63 of our Americans who have died. That's nearly the same number of South Koreans who have died with us having weeks to months to get prepared. And that's the thing. We aren't testing enough. We aren't containing enough. And we are way behind. I'm not telling you this to scare you. I'm sharing this information to inform you. So that you know that this is serious business and you need to take every precaution to keep you and your family safe. So what should you look out for? Well, for starters, know that you can be completely asymptomatic, meaning that you don't have a cough, fever, or anything, and still be a carrier for the virus. Think of it like the person with a cold sore. Although you may not see the fever blister on their lip, that person is always positive for the virus. Same here. You may not see the runny nose, coughing, fever, and the person can still be infected. And when you're infected, and even if you're not showing any signs, you could potentially pass that virus off to someone else and it can kill them. Again, I'm not trying to scare you, but it's true. The greatest risk are, are for those that are older than 65 years old, and someone with a weak immune system, like on steroids, or if they have chronic lung infection, bronchitis, Crohn's disease, irritable bowel syndrome, right? If their immune system is depressed. But trust me when I say, 
Although the news and 45 keeps saying that it only kills old people, there are 20-year-olds on life support as we speak. So what should you do? One, quarantine yourself. I cannot stress this enough. Even if you are completely healthy, keep it that way. That means avoid large crowds, no going to the malls, no going to restaurants, no church, no going on public transportation systems if you can avoid it. Work from home. It means FaceTime your friends instead of going to the house. It means Netflix and chill by yourself. Yes, as an introvert, it's your dream. But as an extrovert, it's your nightmare. But this is the number one thing that you can do to keep yourself safe. So go to the store and buy food for your house for at least a week or two. Limit deliveries to your house, keeping in mind you are putting that person at risk. And also know they are coming into contact with many other people before they come to you so they can come and infect you. Don't gouge and, and go and, and buy up all the medical supplies and hand sanitizers. Keep some for everyone else and don't be that guy like the one who bought up all those bottles of, um, of like Purell and now nobody can stand him because he's selfish. He's selfish. Two, wash your hands all day long. Like soap and water, it does the trick. Keep yourself clean. Three, don't touch your face. And four, what I would say is stay in a well-ventilated area if you do have to go to crowds. Some people can't help it. They have to go. You can use a, a simple face mask if you have to go out and be in, you know outside in society or even a bandana around your mouth. But honestly, these things just aren't really effective, but at least it keeps your hands away from your mouth. You know, all in all, just stay at least a good two to four arm's length away from people and try to prevent any droplets from coming out of their mouth as they're talking, if they're coughing, if they're sneezing, so you won't get infected. Now, when should you go to get tested or when should you call for help? One, if you have no symptoms whatsoever, you should not get tested. Now, you should still practice the four things we just talked about, right? Quarantining yourself. You should wash your hands all day long. Don't touch your face. Stay in well-ventilated areas and away from people. But you should not get tested. Um, and, and keep in mind that you can still be infected, though. I just want to say this. If you have no symptoms, you can still be infected, but just asymptomatic and having no signs of infection. And you can potentially get someone else really sick to the point of death. Remember that there is a three to seven day lag time before a person who gets in contact with someone who is infected may actually start to show symptoms. So like if you walked around someone um, who was infected on Monday, you may not start to have the fevers and chills and the coughs um, until Wednesday or Thursday of that week. Um, so just because you're not showing a sign doesn't mean you're not infected. Um, but if you're not having any symptoms whatsoever, we will not test you. We don't have enough tests to go around. But if you are that person, remember to take your vitamins and stay hydrated. Now, let's say you are now on day four and you actually do have a fever. How high you say? 103 to 105 degrees Fahrenheit now. Let's say you also though still don't have any symptoms. Should you go into the hospital and get tested? The answer is no. You can call the doctor and hopefully once these drive-through tests are more readily available, you can get a test, but at this stage, we really would not like to test you. Why? Because again, we have limited amounts of tests and we need to reserve those tests for the sickest of the sickest patients to determine our course of action of treatment. So what should you do? You know, you have this fever, you really don't have any other symptoms. What should you do? 
One, call your doctor to let them know your symptoms. Two, isolate yourself and avoid contact with anyone else so you won't potentially contaminate them and so you don't get a second infection on top of whatever it is that's causing you to have a fever. Three, keep a fever diary and record your temperature and any other symptom as they develop. Also in that diary, write down or try to remember everywhere you've been for the last three to five days, who you saw, where'd you go. That will help us as doctors to keep track of where you could potentially have gotten this um, bug and who else you may have kind of spread it to. We call that the community spread. The fourth thing is to hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. And I don't mean sweet tea or Kool-Aid. I mean water, that plain old H2O. And if you're fancy, you can add some ice. That's it. Now, let's imagine this scenario. This, you have a fever, you now have a cough and you're short of breath and you're having chest pain. Now, if that is you, you need a doctor. At that point, you need to be seen. So one, call your doctor first. Many may tell you that instead of coming to their office to go straight to the main hospital because they're able to care for you. Not all places can handle these types of cases. Two, after you call your doctor, when you get to the hospital, you will likely be tested first for the flu. Yes, I said the flu. Remember I said that although we have vaccines for the flu and although your body has been exposed from previous years, the virus changes itself slightly. So you have incomplete immunity. If your flu test comes back negative, then you will likely be tested for COVID-19. If it comes back positive, they may not test you for COVID-19. Just keep that in mind, right? Because we only, again, have a limited supply of this, this test. So once they test you for, the, um, for the, the flu, and like I said, let's just say for the sake of argument that your flu came back negative, um, and they're testing you now for the COVID-19, what they'll do in order to test you, they will put a little swab into your nose, a long Q-tip. It's not comfortable, but this is the way that we test for those diseases, right? And then they will likely start an IV on you, begin hydrating you with IV fluids. They'll draw labs to look at your, your um, different organs and how they're functioning. And that's going to be your lungs, your livers, your kidney, right? And they also attain a, a, a value called your lactate level. And that's to see how adequate blood is flowing and moving around your body. You see, again, not to scare you, but the reports coming out of China are saying that this virus attacks the body from the inside out, and I do mean all the organs. And what we're trying to do is to catch the organs before they start to fail, to look for those signs and symptoms. This may mean in order to help you, we'll place you on supplemental oxygen, and that'll be either a nasal cannula in your nose, um, or we may have to put you to sleep and place a breathing tube in your mouth. Now, next, I'm going to describe the worst case scenario, and I know some of our audience members may choose to not want to hear that. Um, I will also say to not let children listen unless you've, you've first listened to this yourself and you approve. But I want to give you an image of what we do to help keep you alive so you can have a better understanding if you or your loved one should fall ill to this virus. As I've stated, it is highly contagious and more deadly than the flu. Estimates at this time are that there'll be between 200,000 and 1.4 million Americans to die from this disease. So I only find it right to tell you what happens and what to expect if one of those persons are actually related to you. I'm not telling you this to scare you. I'm trying to inform and hopefully prevent as many as possible from getting to this point. So here goes, like I said, remove your kids, 
um, at this point and or if you don't like kind of gruesome talk, then don't continue. So if you get the more severe form of COVID-19, um, this coronavirus, it causes necrosis, necrosis of the tissues. And by necrosis, I mean that the cells literally begin to die. Their organs begin to die. So we, your medical team of doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, we try to support all those organs as they show us that they are failing as best as possible. That means that if your oxygen is low, we'll give you oxygen in your nose by a nasal cannula, and if really, really low, we'll put you to sleep and place a breathing tube in your mouth to better help deliver oxygen to those organs. If this is your family member, you may see them with a breathing tube in place, and the doctors may flip them over in bed with their face down and them lying on their belly. Now, this is called the prone position, and it helps to improve the lung function and therefore improve oxygen getting into the blood. To get a better idea of what is happening to the lungs, you may, you may see your loved ones getting a chest X-ray or a CT scan, some people call it a CAT scan, of their chest. Now, if that happens, any imaging, any lab work, ask the doctor to see the pictures of the scan. Have them explain the concern because you need to know. Now, they may not have all the answers. They may not be able to tell you exactly what to expect. And if the hospital is really busy, they may not have a lot of time. So just be really patient with us as we're trying to get through this pandemic. But we should, as physicians, we should inform you as much as possible. Now, that's the lungs. What about the next organ, the heart? Now, we use the lactate and the blood gas values. The blood gas, this is a, you will get it from your blood sample, and it tells us what's your acid base level. We call that your pH. And we obtain this blood work to see just how well the oxygen is moving through your blood, through your tissues, right? If your lactate level is high or if your pH is low, your pH being low means that your acid level is high, you may see your family member on a number of different blood pressure medicines to keep their blood pressure normal. Most times, if your lactate is high and your acid is high, that means that your blood pressure is super low. Now, unfortunately, per Chinese reports, that is what is causing the death of these people, is that the heart certainly fails, or, or you get a what we call a heart failure or a cardiogenic shock, or that the heart just immediately just stops beating altogether. Now, that's scary because most time people think it's just the lungs that are being failing, but that's not true. Now, there are some machines called ECMO, spelled E-C-M-O if you want to Google it. These are heart-lung machines that we can use in the ICU, but the problem is, is that we only have a few. For instance, UVA, where I work, we currently only have six total, and to go on this machine has its own risk. For instance, if you're too sick, you may not qualify for it because the risk of going on the machine outweigh the benefits. So this will be a case-by-case -case decision made by the physician. Now, three, what, what, that's one machine. There are other machines that you may notice being used to help your families like dialysis. We're seeing reports that these patients go into kidney failure and need dialysis machines for help. And most of us are pretty, unfortunately, pretty um, common with the name dialysis, right? But there are other organs reported take a hit that um, we don't have a machine for, and that's the liver and the brain. You know, we'll draw blood work to track how the liver is doing, and you can ask your doctor what's the ALT and the AST and the ALKFOS. They don't know what you mean. And you can start to trend those out to keep a little diary so you can keep in touch with what your, what your loved one's body is doing. But for the brain, what you will see is that we will sometimes have to have your loved one put in a coma. 
um, just to because they're so florally sick. And throughout the day, we will pause the medicine that we use to put them into that coma to wake them up and ask them to squeeze our hands or wiggle our toes, right? We want to see if their brain is communicating with us. And if they do, if they can follow those commands, then we then turn the medicine back on and let them go to sleep. But if they don't respond, you may see us start to put little stickers on their head that are placed by the neurologist or the brain doctors. This is called for an EEG, EEG. And this can alert us if there is any kind of seizure activity. Or you may hear us say we need to do a CT scan or MRI of the brain to get a better idea of what's going on, why are they not waking up. All these actions are, are just simply to get a better idea of what's happening on the inside of the body, whether this is blood work, whether this is x-rays or, or, or CT scans, because we can't see that with our, with our eyes, right? And it's all in order to help your loved one fight off this disease. Now, I know it can be scary. Seeing all these lines, catheters, tube, and tubes coming out of your loved ones can be overwhelming. But the way I like to think of it is this. If you fall and break your ankle, we will put your foot in a cast, right? Well, this virus breaks the entire body. And these catheters, tubes, and medicines are cast for the inside. It's to help the organ as much as possible to promote healing. Now, this is all what's happening on the health side. And I know it was a lot. And if you have any questions, be sure to write us at info at goodstockconsulting.com. I'll be sure to respond. I can guarantee you that. But I wanted to also touch on the political side of things because you know we want to be as informed as possible. Politics should not steer medicine, but yet here we are, right? So the good news is that we are seeing some bills finally coming out of the house to help you everyday Americans during this time of much needed quarantine. We know that this can have a huge economic impact on your life by causing you to miss work. And with no work comes no money. And with no money, no food. And the piling on of bills for rent and mortgage, right? I get it. So as of Friday, the House, led by Nancy Pelosi, passed the Family First Response Act. Now, the Senate still has to vote on this, so it hasn't been fully adopted. But it's primarily aimed at expanding the safety net to cope with the potentially catastrophic financial impact that the coronavirus is having on everyday Americans. And this by providing free coronavirus testing. This is regardless if you have insurance or not. It provides food assistance. Right. And they, they put aside five hundred million dollars for women, for those with young children and infants. Right. Um, and also for the elderly. It's removing existing work requirements on the food stamp program and provides over one hundred million dollars in food grants to U.S. territories like Puerto Rico, for instance. Right. So you need to check in and see if you qualify for those aids. It also safeguards Medicaid benefits and sets an established paid family medical leave and sick leave for up to two weeks. So your employer can get reimbursed for you taking that time off. So again, look at this, um, follow, uh, follow this closely as the Senate is supposed to vote on this. But these are the benefits that you will be awarded, right? Now, on March the 3rd, there was also a passing of another bill. And this actually did go through the House and Senate. It was for $8.3 billion emergency building, billing. Um, and it was to address public health aspects of this pandemic. So 2.2, I think, um, was uh, awarded towards the public health funding with $950 million to support like local and state entities. 
300 million to um for people to be able to afford these vaccines and the research behind that like three billion towards research of what is this what is this virus how can we treat it and what vaccines are going to come um kind of forward now in addition to these big bills being passed or being considered there have been a national emergency called and prior to this many states declared their own form of emergency and effectively called for a quarantine for the counties with the most cases of infections to try to limit the spread. Now, this means there have been closures of schools K through 12, right? As well as many colleges um, telling students not to return to campus at the spring break, telling people to limit visits to prison, nursing homes, right? You've also heard of big events like the NCAA tournament, the World Soccer, NBA being canceled, as well as the Democratic debates. But note there is also a general call for any event that's over 100 people to be canceled. We just don't want for um, people to potentially go into these larger spaces and get in contact with someone and then have that spread onto other people. Now, remember, just because your county does not report any cases does not mean there is not an infection there. We simply don't have the tests available, so we haven't been testing anyone, for, or at least when I say anyone, we haven't been tested all of those that could potentially be sick. For example, the state of Virginia, where I currently reside, we currently only have 470 tests available, and there's 8.5 million Virginians. So be safe. Protect yourself and your family. Limit gatherings. Call to check in on your elderly um, family members frequently, but FaceTime them if you have to, and if they're looking fantastic, don't go over there because you could potentially contaminate them and quarantine yourself as much as possible. Now, I know this was a ton of information, but Good Stock Consulting is committed to keeping you as up-to-date as possible. You guys know Kim and Kelly are both in the public health arena, and I'm in the hospital, so there is literally no question that's off-limits. So ask away. Email us at info at goodstockconsulting.com, or you can find us on Instagram. Our Instagram page is under the B Word Unpacked. Um, you can find us on Twitter, and that's under Good Stock Rising. Or you can find us on Facebook under Good Stock Consulting. You know what? Matter of fact, now that I'm thinking about this, we need to get all of those things together and come up with one name. But in the meantime, y'all stay safe and stay blessed. Um, I'll be praying for you guys. And this is Dr. Ebony Jade Hilton signing off for Good Stock.